Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Davis, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 
Welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it's Friday, January 31st, 2020. Thanks so much for tuning in. We've got some guests coming in around 12.30 or so, and I'll start off with a few news stories and some music. Today's record is Bjork's Homogenic. Got it from the lovely San Francisco Public Library. Please support your local libraries and librarians. They are saving the world. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. You can tell by my voice, I'm a little bit tired. I'm waking up a bit, so bear with me. We're on Ohlone land, and one way to learn more about the inhabitants of the land is if you go to ramitush.com, and that's R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.com. You can learn about the history and the original people of San Francisco. And also, if you're able, please do donate to the Shumi land tax, and you can find that at S-H-U-U-M-I land tax. Got... I don't I don't know why I'm surprised that there are so many fascists in this country and I should have learned by now but I I guess I'm just still astounded and I made a really good self-care practice in 2019 I think it was that I said I was not going to argue with any neoliberals I'm not going to waste my energy trying to convince people who support war that it's a bad idea because sometimes it is good to have conversation and dialogue. I do believe that's what will save us. And also, if there are people who are refusing to question the brainwashing that has taken place in this country, and I'm sure many other places as well, then it's it's really difficult. One shouldn't have to argue that the earth deserves to be saved and that humans all deserve safety and comfort and to have their basic needs met. I don't think that's a radical position. However, some people would, would say it is. And it's really, anyway, been trying not to argue with people, and it's really tough when you have a lot of folks out there defending uh, police brutality, for instance. And in New York right now, there have been, they decided to, because it's, and same with BART here, I haven't been taking BART very much lately, however, four of the last four times I took BART, I did see either police or and or fair inspectors on board. And if they already have the gates up to prevent people from coming in, why do you need to then have fair inspectors come in on the train and double check? It doesn't make any sense, and it's a huge waste of money. I'd rather money be used to make sure that there are bathrooms in all the stations that are working and water fountains and that all stations are accessible with elevators and escalators that work and perhaps provide tickets for low-income folks because uh, BART's pretty fucking expensive. Just my ideas. We don't need more cops. Anyway, so that's the BART version. And then in New York, it's they've really, they hired like 500 new cops for the stations, even though the subways have not been running on time. And there's a lot of issues with it. So a lot of folks have been organizing. And there's, I've been following on Twitter a little bit. And one thing is called swipe it forward. So it's really just like swiping forward to make sure that folks can have access to the trains. They will... In some stations, they have deliberately made it so folks, unless you have cash, if you don't have a cash, wait, excuse me, if you have cash or a debit card, you can't use the machines. And so pretty much people are limited to either having exact, like having a ticket already in hand, and then the cops are kind of there waiting, and they're going to arrest you and or ticket you if you don't have the fare. It's really backwards, I think. The idea that criminalizing poverty and making things worse and harder for people if they can't afford or are unable to pay the fare to ride a train, which could very well be funded, so it could be free for everyone. Not that difficult. Um, oh, yeah. So then folks were kind of like leaving the gates open and finding ways to ensure that people have access to the 
to the subway. Oh, goodness. That's okay. So got a lot of stories to get to and I'll see what I can get to in the first uh, 15 minutes here. I might read some headlines. I might go in. Ugh, I'm already sighing and I haven't even started yet. From Business Insider, Amazon engineer calls for Ring to be shut down immediately over privacy concerns. And this is an article from businessinsider.com written by Haley Peterson and it came out on January 27th. I'll read a little bit here. Um, here's just the, uh, whew, the three points at the beginning of the article. An Amazon software engineer named Max Eliser said the home security company ring should be shut down immediately. The privacy issues are not fixable with regulation and there is no balance that can be struck, Eliser said. Eliser's comments were part of a post in which hundreds of Amazon employees shared their views on various company policies and products. And the article has a lot more info here. Amazon acquired Ring, which makes video doorbells and home security systems in 2018. The camera company has recently faced scrutiny over privacy issues, mostly around its agreements with law enforcement agencies and problems with hackers accessing the devices. Some of Ring's own employees were also abused have also abused access to customer feeds, the company told lawmakers recently. The Medium Post, quoting Eliza, included critical comments from hundreds of Amazon employees about various Amazon policies and products. It was published Sunday by the advocacy group Amazon Employees for Climate Justice and meant to protest the company's external communications policy. So for more information, you can check out the article at Business Insider and or check out the group uh, Amazon Employees for Climate Justice. Okay, very brief, very brief article. Next up... Ugh, this is all just, hey, we're living in a dystopia. Everything's terrible. What can we do about it to keep ourselves somewhat safe, I guess? Maybe that's the theme of the show now. Okay, so ugh, there is a, oh gosh, okay. Whew. There is an event coming up in on the East Coast, Lessons for Female Reporters, Online Harassment and Physical Security. And this is happening Thursday, February 6th, 2020, from noon to 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And this is at the Harvard Kennedy School Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Register below for this virtual training and information session with Harvard Kennedy School's Juliet Kayem, Faculty Director of the Homeland Security Program at the Better Center for Science and International Affairs, and Nancy Gibbs, Director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Note the focus of this session will be on U.S. laws and law enforcement techniques, and so will be most applicable for reporters and newsrooms based in the United States. It will not focus on security issues for foreign correspondents or those reporting from conflict zones. Details on how to join the webinar. Okay, so that's a bit about the event. And initially, I'm going to go back to the original post where I found it, which described the event and why there just has been an increase on harassment of reporters. And so folks were really looking to find a way to share information on how folks can protect themselves. <sighs> that was the the main thing. And then the so the Shorenstein Center had tweeted, uh, threats to US-based reporters, particularly women, are growing both online and offline. So this is about how folks can protect themselves and the security experts are gonna be there. So if you are and or know female reporters and they're able to access this event, I think it would be super helpful and I'm glad folks are organizing around keeping one another safe. 
Next up, oh, goodness gracious. This is all just, like, I don't go out of my way to read the shitty news. It's just things that I feel like should be sharing that I'm not seeing in mainstream media or corporate media. I feel the need to, to, to share it so we know what's happening. Oh, this is actually from the Chicago Tribune, so this is not, like, a small time. This is pretty mainstream. A suburban filmmaker sued to find out why the FBI was watching her Muslim community. It's weird to read how they wrote about us. And this is written by... Nasheen Hussein and Morgan Green, and it came out on January 30th. Since 2016, documentary filmmaker Asya Buda, excuse me, Asya Bundawi has been waiting for answers from the FBI to one question: Which parts of her Arab American community in Bridgeview were surve- surveyed after 9/11? After a court hearing last week, she learned she will have to keep waiting. Growing up. Boon Dawi heard stories from her mother and other community members about FBI agents visiting her neighborhood and knocking on doors. After two family friends were jailed for white-collar crimes, Boon Dawi said in her 2018 documentary about Bridgeview she feared her family would be next. A journalist by profession, Boon Dawi said she needed to know why her community was being tracked, so in 2016, she submitted questions through, the Freedom, through a Freedom of Information Act request to the FBI. Eventually, she received more than 33,000 heavily redacted documents that contained more than 500 names of people and organizations from Muslim communities around the country. It's weird to read how they wrote about us, to see how they saw us, Boon Dawi said. When we look through the files, we see names we recognize. As part of her lawsuit to obtain the requested documents more quickly than the three-year timeline the FBI originally offered, a judge ordered two FBI employees to appear at a January 22nd public deposition to answer questions from attorneys. A couple of dozen community supporters also attended, but much of the proceeding focused on the FOIA process. Bundawi is taking up an issue that has been hanging over Muslim-American communities for years, and one that few people even know about. After 9-11, the federal government decided to expand its surveillance of certain neighborhoods. Even today, the reasons for these actions haven't been fully explained. University of Chicago professor Aziz Hook, who teaches constitutional law, says said it is not surprising that the government uses more controversial tactics in its terrorism investigations. It's not a new idea at all that terrorism is different from ordinary crime because its consequence and human cost is so great that the state has an interest in intervening earlier and in a range of more intrusive ways than it would in ordinary crime, Hook said. How such tactics are perceived depends in part on who is being asked. Bundawi's 2018 documentary, The Feeling of Being Watched, describes a community where strange cars were constantly parked outside houses, cameras were installed near mosques, and FBI agents questioned residents inside their homes. At the end of the day, we think what they're really trying to hide is that there was a profiling investigation in the 90s of all Muslims, all of their organizations under the auspice of this counterterrorism investigation, and it was basically profiling, said Bundawi's attorney, Christina Abraham. Surveillance of Muslim Americans' communities, Muslim communities, excuse me, Uh, Surveillance of Muslim American communities in the Chicago area started in the 1990s when the FBI began focusing on charities in the U.S. as possible sources of funding for terrorists overseas. One one such investigation was Operation Vulgar Betrayal, one of the largest anti-terrorism investigations ever conducted in the United States before 9-11, according to Bundawi's lawsuit. 
FBI agent Daniel William said vulgar betrayal ended in 2000, but after 9-11, FBI field offices were encouraged to go through closed cases to determine whether there were subjects worth investigating again, he said. Three Palestinian men, including Mohammed Salah of Bridgeview, were indicted on material support and racketeering charges. The documents Bundawi received describe some of the surveillance and information gathering, lists of Islamic centers, Muslim student associations, and businesses around the country, news clippings about Salah, descriptions of an Islamic Society of North America convention in Chicago in 1997, and records of sharing documents between FBI field offices, among other files. Uh, Shaban Johnson, spokeswoman for the Chicago FBI office, declined to comment on the case. <sighs> Itadal Shalabi, co-founder and executive director of Arab American Family Services, said the community has always felt like it's being watched. After September 11th, Shalabi said neighbors moved because they felt like targets, while others looked to the community for security. Shalabi said she remembered starting patrols with other women to ask people in unfamiliar parked cars what they were up to, suspecting they were FBI and police. The FBI came and knocked on my door after 9-11, Shalabi said. My son was eight years old at that time. So I personally made a point to go downtown to get a FOIA to see who would report on an eight-year-old as a terrorist for Hamas and to ensure that my children saw their mom using the law of the land as well to bring about some sort of justice, Shalabi said. Experiences like that took a toll on young people, Shalabi said, and kids became hypervigilant about certain trucks, saying things like, look, the FBI is here. But they also affected the larger community, sowing doubt. That feeling of, man, so-and-so is being watched, Shalabi said. Is he innocent? Is she innocent? Standing behind Bundawi's request for an accounting feels personal, Shalabi said. Kudos to her, because a lot of people in the community were not believing that someone could do that, an average person could do that. She said she loves this country because the average person has a right to make a noise and to say this is unfair. But reactions were mixed among members of the Mosque Foundation, a neighborhood hub in Bridgeview established by Palestinian immigrants in 1954. One man said he had watched parts of the documentary but was hesitant to endorse it. He wasn't eager to make waves. Another woman said she wished she could have attended the Wednesday deposition. A 15-year-old girl said she and her friends had recently learned about Bundawi's project and thought possible surveillance was shocking. Mohammed Salah, who was put on the U.S. specially designated terrorist list in the 1990s after being arrested in Israel with large sums of money, was the only Bridgeview resident to be charged with a crime as a result of the community's surveillance. He was acquitted by a jury in 2007 of racketeering charges, but convicted of obstruction of justice and sentenced to 21 months in prison. He died in 2016 in Bridgeview. In the Chicago suburbs, a backlash against Muslims grew after 9-11. Suburban residents and zoning boards have protested mosque building permits in places like Palos Heights, Orland Park, Glenview, and Naperville, the last one inspiring a play on the topic. Often, they would say that the concern was over traffic, but sometimes residents would say they were afraid of terrorism. Law enforcement officials may feel a responsibility to take pre preventative measures, like enforcing surveillance tactics rather than waiting to pursue damages after a crime is committed, said U of C law professor Jeffrey Stone. Anti-terrorism methods rely heavily on finding out who is plotting what, said Stone, but also include the difficult question of appropriate limits. Those in the position of trying to protect people are understandably much more focused on doing more aggressive things than when you talk to them in a basic criminal context, Stone said. Many people can justify targeting certain communities because of 
the perceived benefits, said Hook, the U of C constitutional law professor. When you have a democracy where the majority decide, and when you're picking a policy that may or may not affect the majority, but will certainly incur costs on a discrete minority, democracies will always choose to inflict those costs, given the policy is costless for most, Hook said. The 33,000 documents Bundawi obtained, more than 20,000 of which are redacted in full, she said, confirmed that the investigation into Salah was a spinoff investigation from Vogel Betrayal. She wants to know if there were other spinoff investigations, perhaps some that are ongoing today. But at the deposition, FBI FOIA officer David Hardy said it was a search of words like spinoff in the full text of the documents didn't fall within the requirements of the FOIA request, which asked for information on investigations that continued the work of Operation Vulgar Betrayal. And the article goes on a little bit more, and you can also read they have a link to a 2004 Tribune report uh, about a month after 9-11, when Chicago's top federal law enforcement officials drove out to the Mosque Foundation for an unusual town hall meeting. And uh, 500 people crowded into the basement as authorities explained that they were simply to promote better relations within the community. But when questioned, the officials made a statement that some in the audience found unsettling. They would neither confirm nor, nor deny that they were investigating the mosque. To comment, the officials said, would violate government policy. And they say, today residents are struggling to understand the implications of surveillance. So you can read more at Chicago Tribune, and uh, we're going to take another music break, and we'll be back in a bit. Stay tuned. Ah.
Welcome back to the Weekly Review. I'm joined here by three guests. Please introduce yourselves. Um, hi, I'm Jacinta Charles. I'm the writer and director of The Gift. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm Kendra Goff, and I'm the cinematographer and editor of The Gift. Uh, and I'm Emma Scully. I'm a co-writer and a production designer for The oh, Gift. Oh, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and we met at the Roxy Theatre, which is a great movie yes. theatre that folks should support. At the, It was a Coven Film Fest. Absolutely, yeah. And the short film The Gift, yes. which, which played. And I was just visually stunning, and I don't want to spoil it by saying too much about it, but it was just really... It was really fun to watch. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. So I thought we could maybe start a bit about what got you interested in filmmaking. Um, yeah, well, for me, I started off as an actress back in Singapore, mm -hmm. actually, and then I got married and I moved to the Bay Area and I continued acting. Um, but there was 
what I sort of felt was being a person of color and being a woman, I just didn't see the roles out there that I wanted to pursue for myself, being an Indian woman. Mm-hmm. And I decided, oh, maybe I should start writing something for myself yes. to, to be in. Um, and as I started writing stories, I kind of realized, you know, it would be nice to sort of guide other actors in my stories. And that's how I decided I'm just going to write and maybe I'll just direct this first short film and see mm-hmm. what happens and it just continued from there and now I I have like so much more passion and so much more energy to put into writing and directing now. That's excellent. Yeah. And what has the collaborative process been like for you all? <laughs> it's It's been interesting. Yeah. We, we, we actually started uh, for the gift. We started this in 2016 when we yeah. got together and I think people are like, wow, you know, it's 2016 that's like three years ago well well, now would be almost well not four but you know it's just that it's we got together end of 2016 but um we we actually met after we met in film school and we didn't really knew each other so well um personally and we thought let's get together and let's get to know each other better Mm -hmm. and let's just try and see if we can hash a story out because we knew we wanted to work together the three of us so um, and then from there, we met at Emma's place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, this film was kind of born out of wanting to collaborate. That came first. Um, and so we were just trying to come up with a, an idea. And I think I think maybe the first thing that we came up with was more like a setting. Um, we I think we wanted to tell some kind of fantasy story. And we um, all liked the idea of... Uh, some like a kind of cold uh, forested like beautiful but maybe slightly mystical place we were kind of inspired by finland mm. yeah uh, jesse's husband is from uh, finland yes um and then uh kendra found a story on reddit uh, tumblr tumblr <laughs> there was a photo of um this collection of little knickknacks like bottle caps and earrings and it was just like an interesting photograph with a lot of different things in it and the caption i don't know if it's true or not but it was um this young girl shared bread with a crow at her windowsill and the crow would bring little trinkets Mm. to her and it was this like interesting exchange and so from there we kind of just brainstormed like what would that relationship look like it seems like it would be really interesting between animal and young girl but then the idea of a crow and it symbolizes so many different interesting things like kind of like darkness but imagination and we we wanted to explore that and that's kind of where the idea was born excellent yeah and so you the writing that happened together then the writing of the script yeah it it took like um it took us like maybe we we brainstormed the story we we start developing the story like over the next few months because you know it's it's not like uh, you, we're we're involving an animal we're involving a young girl and a forest and and you know we wanted to make sure that that we had a good story you know i mean these are very interesting subjects having a crow and having a young girl who's 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 going through um uh, who's going through a hard time at school and all that, but we wanted to make sure that we weave a really interesting story and, and a story that can that can make people sort of um, question a lot of things mm-hmm. in in um, in in life, I guess you know. But so it took us a while, and then it took us a while 
before we were finally satisfied with the kind of story that we got and and i think that took us like about three to four months we had like a few drafts i want to say like up to five drafts before we finally settled on this is the story and we wanted to make sure i think one of the things that's so interesting about our script is there's hardly any dialogue as Mm -hmm. you saw it there's just like probably one line in everything but that was so much on purpose because we thought we are going to be shooting in in the redwoods in northern california it's beautiful and like that has to be one of the characters you know in the film yeah um so you mentioned that you were from uh, singapore yes and i was curious i was looking at one of your your websites Uh and i was curious as you'd mentioned that you were able to get some film uh some funding yeah for earlier films and i was curious about what that process was like for you <laughs> it's a it's a oh wow i mean it's it's a hard pro you know anyone who has who has been out there trying to get funding for their films mm-hmm. you know the paperwork is such a bitch mm-hmm. um it's it's a lot of paperwork yeah. but i think when you when you feel that you have a good story to tell mm-hmm. It's really just worth it to just go through um, that that whole process, and it basically they they came they they sent me an email and they were asking like okay so what exactly would this be signifying and and um, what are you trying to what the message is you mm-hmm. know in the story and and but I think they were also interested because of the fact that I'm a Singaporean person mm-hmm. who's in the states mm-hmm. and um, I'm trying to tell a a very different kind of story that's not Singaporean, yes. you know. So I think that sort of interested them as well. Mm-hmm. And obviously they would, they're kind of proud, like, oh, hey, you know, we have a Singaporean representing I see. Singapore doing an American kind of story. So mm-hmm. um, that that made it a bit more, uh, I don't know whether it's easier or just more interesting for them to like want mm-hmm. to support um, to support me. But yeah, the process was... was um, it took took me a month and then yeah. they they finally gave me like the go ahead and and i think what was really great was that they gave me the full funding oh that's for, awesome yeah so that was pretty cool yeah earlier on here we were talking about how as artists it can be difficult to promote and market and fund our work and then even connecting it to that like in, yeah. in capitalism how does one art is about telling stories and expressing oneself and questioning the status quo and yeah. a lot of that is really antithetical to charging money for something yeah so it's it's, i'm always grateful when i meet fellow artists who have been able to get their work out to the masses yeah it's it's just so important i one of the one of the things that i i felt was um (laughs) so the three of us the the three of us had to we're so engrossed in making the film yeah you know we were so focused on like because we're filmmakers and we're like this is what we want and then when it came time for us to actually sort of promote the film like oh okay so what do we do now and it's such a learning curve for us you know as artists as well like how to promote your work and how to get it out there to to people and um we're just so grateful that coven festival Mm -hmm. you know saw our work and and that's mainly also because you know we're all three women Mm -hmm. uh in heads of department for this film you know kendra being the dp emma being production designer and me being the director but also, the fact that we are doing a fantasy genre film, mm-hmm. I think that sort of helped elevate our publicity somewhat, you know, um, like, or, you know, people were sort of interested, like, oh, we didn't know this was, like, done by you guys and all. Yeah. Um, but this is a learning curve for us, trying to get our film out there. And, and of course, being on your show, it's going to be um, a great um, publicity tool for us, you know. 
So um, I do not know whether that just answered any question. I may have just gone off tangent right now. That's all right. That's why we're, we're here to, to talk. So I think yeah. that there was a girl at the Coven Film Festival, a filmmaker, and she said, um, the reason I'm a filmmaker is because I don't like to talk about my art and my work. Mm. I like for it to show for itself. And I yeah. feel like we kind of feel similar. Like it's there's something that's really difficult when you, something you've cherished for so long and babied and it's like your own little creation and then talking about it is so hard because you can't necessarily put it into words yeah but um we've put a lot of heart and soul into it yeah yeah i can tell yeah yeah, yeah. So perhaps we could talk about other things then. You know, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Just> saying. <laughs> um, sure. So y'all, um, so we've talked a little bit about the collaborative process. I was curious about what, what's next um, or what do you plan to do? Are you, do you want to continue working together on the next projects? Is that something you're considering? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I think I, I think we would definitely yeah. work yeah. together again. Nice. Um, which I think says a lot for how the collaboration went that yeah. we're willing yeah. to do that. Um, the, the next project I hope to be working on will be Jacintha's oh, yeah. possibly feature film. Possibly, possibly. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's so, <laughs> I just want to bring back the reason why there was a bit of silence is because yeah. I was pointing at them to answer. So, um, it's, so there's no hesitation that we do yeah. want to work together oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just in case anyone's like, Oh, I guess something's good. No, no, we do. We do. We love each other very much. We've gotten to know each other so well now. And it's, it's been amazing. It's, it's an amazing ride. It's, it, it was also like a learning lesson for all three of us getting yeah. together. And, um, and this was pro possibly our biggest project to date with all the films that we've been doing. Um, so yeah, I I'm working on a I'm I'm actually working on a feature film that's inspired by uh, the race riots in Singapore back in 1964, and um, I'm carving out a small story out that that will that will be born out of the race riots, and it's been very interesting researching um, about the turbulent times of my own country. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, because it deals with race, which is so such an important thing. I, I mean, stories about race is so powerful, race and religion, mm -hmm. politics, they're so powerful. But I wanted to tell a story from a very um, young, per young person's perspective yes. and how they deal with um, how they deal with these kind of topics. Uh, at their age when they're neither here nor there you know mm -hmm. they're not really adults but they're not really kids yes and but they're at this age well what do I listen to do I listen to what do I do mm -hmm. and um, it's really about a friendship that's being born out of this um, out of the race riots and I know that I would love to work with these guys again um, and and even though they don't they have not been to Singapore and stuff but you know I tell them so much mm -hmm. about Singapore and um and I would love to to just like have them there with me, and you know, and and go through another uh, process. I I don't know by by I don't know how or in in what capacity, um, but it would be really great to to work together, and also maybe other stuff that we could possibly work on while we're in the Bay Area as yeah. well. Yeah. I think also with you know the talking about race and how in, in America it's just so it doesn't happen and then if it does it's a lot of it's backwards and so much of it has been erased yeah. in this country yeah and so it's interesting you know because uh, I read this text and I think Emma has seen this text from this the, this book about Singapore and yeah. and it basically says that um, 
you know, whatever happened in the past is never dead and gone because mm-hmm. we are living in the we, we are living in the product of history. Yes. Basically, we are the consequences of what happened in the past. And yes. so what do we do to make things right? And mm-hmm. how do we how do we make things better? And I think and with this film that I'm trying to develop, it's like if, if there's a way I could you know, bring a little bit of the past to speak to the people in the present and the future, there'll be, you know, there'll be something that I, I would love to do. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, you know, one of the things that I realized was that in, there was actually, uh, so this race riots happened in Singapore in 1964 in July. Mm-hmm. And the same week, there was another race riot that happened in Harlem in 1964, July, mm. between the weeks of July 21st and something. And, um, and but nobody really knows about the race riots in Singapore. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it before. Yeah. I, I saw your website. Yeah. yeah, and people are like, "Oh wait, there was there were race riots in Singapore." Like, absolutely, there was race riots. Yeah. We have we have four races in Singapore. We have the Eurasians, the Indians, Malays, and the Chinese. Mm-hmm. And this particular race riot was between the Malays and the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's just unfortunate that whatever was experienced back then, we still experience it now. Yeah. You know. And and, um, and I think as long as there's going to be things like that to experience, there's always going to be stories to tell. Right. Yeah. And it's so important to have the narrative because I think part of it's also like, uh, fortunately, as we know, like the narrative in this country is from the side of, for, well, just the, the narrative that we hear is just really a lot of times backwards and very like from the side of the oppressors pretty much. And so growing up in this country and what folks learn in schools and through the media and so many other institutions, there really isn't any way to, one has to kind of either through word of mouth or just through one's own means really find out stories. And so I feel like folks who tell the stories and share their art and write about it are the, are the folks who are really sharing history as it was. Yeah. And I, that's one of, that's one of the things we wanted to do with our film um, because if if you if you see if any anyone who has seen our film and you have seen our film we deal with bullying mm-hmm. um and it was very important that we highlight that in in our film because um but we wanted to do it in a very um i used to tell the girls that we're going to make an adult film and we, it just so happens that there are two young girls <laughs> in this adult film um but we wanted it to not be uh something that everyone has seen every day or, yeah. or any other film that's like, oh, this is a story about bullying. So we took a very different approach in terms of um, cinematically, we, we told it, like I said, without hardly any dialogue with the exception of that one line. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a bit of the little voiceovers here and there, but there was no dialogue with exception of that one line. Um, we brought you on a really beautiful visual cinematic journey mm-hmm. from start to end. We we had that intimate moments between the hybrid, the cruel hybrid, and the girl. But we also highlighted the bullying that she faced yes. in school, and I thought that was a very important thing that we needed to tell, um, and not just give like an empty, like an empty short film story. You mm-hmm. know? And I'm and we managed to do it like in in the runtime of runtime of twelve minutes. I think that was um, a pretty pretty good thing that we i mean i give ourselves a pat on the back (laughs) for yeah 
Yeah, it was really well done. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Which was your favorite part? <laughs> I mean, the visual. I mean, all of it's the visual, so that doesn't really narrow it down. Yeah. I think just the 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 young actor who played like the crow type, mm. like the movements, like so much was expressed in just the like the, the acting of yeah. it and the relationship between the the crow and the the protagonist. Yeah. And the way they communicated and. It just felt really, like, very sincere, and you could feel like a real connection between those two actors, and that's you can't really fake that. Like, I know acting is about faking something. However, there does have to be a vulnerability, and you can really tell when there's a connection between actors, and I, I felt that. Yeah, they had they had really great chemistry. Mm-hmm. They did. Yeah. yeah, Sierra and Cassandra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Sierra played the Raven, uh, the hybrid, and mm-hmm. Cassandra played um, the girl, the protagonist, and we cannot forget Drake. The actual raven. Oh, the actual raven. Yeah, that was something. I was like, also just curious. I'm like, how did that happen? Like, you know, it wasn't like CGI or anything. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, Drake the Raven. Yeah. His name. Um, yeah, that was what we originally had uh, written the the role as a, a crow, yeah. we? Um, but we didn't know that American crows are protected, so it was really hard to find. Mm. A, a, Crow as talent. Um, yeah. <laughs> the casting website. Yeah. Sur- like, searching crow. Yeah. <laughs> Wingspan. <or> yes. <laughs> Ages. I don't know how old crows are. Um, so Lisa, our producer, found us Drake, um, and Drake's handler is called Kenny. Yes. Um, and and he was wonderful. He was a great little actor. <laughs> he, he, yeah, he was. He was the he, um, and he had a very cute little strut. Uh, which we witnessed. I mean, he was supposed to be this really, <laughs> you know, like if you see in the film, he's like very um, kind of kind of majestic, like being on set, you know, because we had a lot of fog oh, yeah. on set too, and he was like walking and all. But you know, if you see if you see the full shots that you know I set with Kendra and went through the shots with her in the raw footage and. It's just the cutest little thing. Mm-hmm. He was hopping and he was oh. like, it was so cute. I'm like, oh my God, Kendra, we have to cut it in a way where, you know, he's not like this cute little thing, but he's just like, yeah, I'm the Raven, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, Kendra did a great job with, with editing that I, I don't know if she had any problems with with any, you know, no. any of the editing. No, no. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting process editing it. I mean, having the transformation from the crow turning into a young girl which is something we didn't mention but basically we wanted there to be a real genuine relationship between a crow and our protagonist and we thought that the best way to show that was for the crow to morph into a also a young girl Mm -hmm. and um that transformation was challenging to edit and i had help with them um to do it but um it, with the help of sound design and the score that we had, it, we really, I think we were able to capture like a pretty magical transformation oh, yeah. when that took place. Yeah. And it worked out well with Drake because Drake is not fully black. He yeah. had a white stripe around his neck mm-hmm. and um, our protagonist had uncommonly large ears, which is why one of the reasons why she was outcasted from her um, classmates and so there was kind of a like something that they had in common and they found solace in each other because they had this one thing that kind of was um, an exterior like a visually um, separating thing from 
their the rest of the their um, peers, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's see. So what's next for for the gift then, in terms of screenings or? We are waiting to hear back. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the Coven Great. Film Festival was the first film festival, and now oh, wow. we are yeah waiting. Yeah. We've submitted to quite a few. Right? Yeah, I, our focus is because you know it's it's so genre specific, mm -hmm. and that's one thing that we realized when we set out to do this film. Um, interestingly, when we did this film, we just thought, oh, oh hey, you know, it's gonna appeal to the masses, and um, people are gonna get it. They're gonna understand it. Um, but after we watched it, we kind of realized that I think this is a very specific um, kind of film. Like, you know, we have the whole fantastical element to it. Yes. Um, there are two child actors in it. Um, and also the fact that it's an almost all women um, crew yeah. in, in the heads of department. And so we thought, okay, we have we have to cap capitalize on that. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that we're different in that sense. So um, our, I mean, sure, you know, you, you want to you wanna submit this to like Tribeca mm -hmm. and to Cinequest and Sundance and all that. Sure, you, you know, go ahead and do that. But then I think our specialty really lies in fantasy genre film, mm -hmm. uh, film festivals. Um, so that's what we are concentrating on. Um, and yeah, we have submitted to, to quite a few and also to a lot of women centric, uh, film festivals as well. That's, mm -hmm. that's our, um, aim. So, awesome. um, we just started our film festival journey. Um, so I would say, you know, we have like about a year okay. to do this, right? Uh, and so we'll, we'll see, you know, we're keeping our fingers crossed and seeing where it goes from here. Excellent. Yeah. And we're very grateful to Coven Film Festival for picking it up and, uh, screening. I mean, they screened our film amongst other really great films. Um, and it's really great to have met all the other female yeah. filmmakers there and having met, um, you there as well. It's, it's pretty cool. So yeah. thank you. Thank you for inviting us to do this. Really. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you, when you mentioned having the, like a female crew, like the times I've been on set and like the crew is like at least 90% cis men from what, what I can gather. And, you know, also like largely white from what I can tell mm. as well. And I would imagine how much more comfortable I know I would feel if it were, if there were many more women and femmes on set, certainly. Yeah. Like, especially in the, in the crew to, you know, in the crew. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think it makes, um, also just storytelling so much more interesting. Yes. Not seeing it through one lens. I, I think that that's what's changing. And I think it's, not just good for like culture and society, but I think it's just good for entertainment because mm. it starts getting really boring when you hear all like the same storylines from the same yeah. <laughs> white man. Yep. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. And I, I really liked the Coven Film Festival. Like what we were seeing, I was learning a lot. Yeah. I was entertained same. the whole time. Yeah. yeah. That. Definitely. I really love that program. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. What Just to cap off on what... Um, um, Kendra mentioned it's I think not many people would expect women to do fantasy genre kind of films like uh, or, or, or maybe we have not been exposed to it but that just goes to show like there isn't many that we have seen that's mm -hmm. helmed by women you yeah. know? and I'm very proud of the fact that we did this you know we we dared to go there because we are 
just as capable or if not just better at telling certain stories you yes know? And you never know that so yeah um but now we know because you know we successfully did this film mm-hmm. um i mean there's no flying things about and there's no spaceships or whatever but you know <laughs> our film is good i mean our film's yeah. really good <laughs> yeah yeah it is it is and what you mentioned i had a guest on a couple weeks ago named annalise ophelian who's a director a documentary filmmaker and she directed a, a series called looking for leia that's on the sci-fi network and it talks about women and non-binary folks who have been really into star wars throughout time and how they've been not able to really express themselves but like even for you know for decades and decades and it's not so much that they weren't there they weren't part of the fantasy or sci-fi community they always have been it's more just whose voices get heard and who and how that kind of has continued on even now with with internet and how these fans are like oh we've always been here yeah so Mm -hmm. yeah it it feels like we've been oppressed quite a bit (laughs) you know and that may be one big reason why why people don't realize that there's so many powerful women that sit behind the scenes to yep. make things happen. Yeah. And um, I'm just glad that the three of us are taking a step towards that to change the narrative. We're like, nope, nope, that we are here. You know, you just got to open the door for us. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. Well, we can, we can wrap up now unless yeah. there is, um, there's anything else you'd like to share before we go? Any upcoming events or per- it could be anything here. It's really totally open. So <laughs> Yeah. Uh, follow I, I us on Instagram. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. We have a hard time keeping up with our Instagram and and social media, but we're trying. Yeah, we apologize if you happen to be one of those. It's like, what is going on? Oh. Um, it's hard to keep up. Yeah, but, like um, you know, we're like I like we said, like we're not we're not very good at promoting ourselves, oh. and we have to change that. We we do realize that. Um, but yeah, Instagram We're at thegiftshortfilm.com, uh, not dot com, just at thegiftshortfilm. People know what Instagram is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're also on, on Facebook. Facebook. You can find our Facebook page. Okay. And yeah, and and I mean, we have to do the festival run, but mm-hmm. uh, then it will be public, hopefully, on Vimeo and. Yeah, we can share it with the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, please, please feel free to, like, update us here and come oh, back absolutely. and call in. And we can definitely help promote the dates oh. of your, your next event. Awesome. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been it's been great coming on here and, and you having us as guests. And, um, yeah, we're very grateful. Yeah. Thank you. I'm grateful to talk with you all. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, we're going to take a bit of a music break and then we'll be back in a bit. Stay tuned. Stop. 
And welcome back to the weekly review. Big thanks to Jacinta and Kendra and Emma for being here. And coming up next, we've got some more news stories. So taking a deep breath in and out. So, um, yeah, there's still deportations happening and they've been happening in this country for centuries. If every time I read a, a book about the history of America and ways in which the powers that be have come down against people they view as less than or people who they view as leftists, there are, one move is to deport people and to scapegoat folks. And there's an article in Truth Dig, January 31st, 2020, that's today, women to one side, men to the other. This is written by Dara Lind from ProPublica, uh, which is a nonprofit newsroom. Uh, Mirza had a sense of foreboding soon after she crossed into the U.S. with her two children and their father, David. A Border Patrol agent ordered the family from Honduras and the rest of their group to divide into two lines, women to one side, men to the other. Mirza held 19-month-old Leah and joined the women's line. David took their six-year-old son, Sebastian, and lined up with the men. An agent told them not to worry. Everyone was going to the same place. A bus took them in two trips to a collection of tents and trailers where they would be processed. They arrived a few hours apart, held separately in a large waiting area. Mirza grew more anxious as she spotted David and Sebastian across the room. She motioned for Sebastian to bring her a bottle of water. Poppy says to take care of yourself, he told her. The family did not come together again, and within days, an international border stood between them. David and Sebastian were sent to Mexico to wait before being allowed to make an asylum claim in the U.S. court. Mirza was fitted with an ankle bracelet, and she and Leah were sent to San Jose, California. In separate Border Patrol interviews, both Mirza and David said they told agents they had come as a family of four, but they were never recorded that way in Border Patrol records. David's marital status was listed as single. He and Mirza had been together for 12 years, but they had never formally married, while Mirza's was listed as unknown. Border Patrol policy is clear. Whenever possible, parents, married or not, should be kept together with their children. David said he pleaded with agents, please find out for me in the system where my wife is. I came with my wife and you separated me from her. The agents weren't moved. You're going to Juarez, David said one agent told him. Deal with it. Border Patrol has long been criticized for carelessness in migrant processing, but under the Trump administration, agents have vastly expended powers to decide migrants' fates. In previous administrations, the government's options for asylum seekers were to detain them in the U.S. or release them, and Border Patrol wasn't in charge of making that choice. The Trump administration has replaced that system, which it derisively called catch-and-release. In September, then-Homeland Security Secretary Kevin McAleenan announced that catch-and-release had fully ended. Mirza and Leah were among the last Central American asylum seekers to be allowed to stay in the U.S. without being detained by ICE. The new strategy is what happened to David and Sebastian. Asylum seekers are sent away from the U.S. as quickly as possible. Under a series of new programs, they can be sent to wait in Mexico, rapidly deported to their new home to their home country, or sent to Guatemala to seek asylum there instead. 
The results are what a lawsuit filed in December against the rapid deportation programs called legal black holes, where Border Patrol agents have almost complete discretion to decide who goes where. Border Patrol agents are not, in general, the right people to be making determinations in individual individual cases, Scott Shukart, a former official with the Department of Homeland Security's Office for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, told ProPublica. Letting agents determine who should be sent to what country is an awful lot of power to be given to people who aren't trained in how to use it. Outcomes can vary wildly, even for migrants in similar situations. Parents arriving on different days have found themselves sent to different countries. One Mexican mother was rapidly deported, along with her children, while the father was detained in the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the agency that includes the Border Patrol, did not respond to requests to comment for this story, but a spokesperson did confirm some details of David and Mirza's apprehension. The spokesperson also confirmed that their records contain no flags of suspected fraud or any other concerns. David and Mirza were simply never labeled part of the same family. And uh, ProPublica is not publishing their family names to protect relatives still in Honduras. In a sense, David and Mirza's family is luckier than some. They were ultimately allowed to stay and seek asylum in the U.S., a chance migrants who have entered more recently may never get. But the, par- but the family's well-being was threatened by their four-month split across an international border. Furthermore, the separation set off a chain of consequences that threatened their chances of ultimately winning asylum. By the time El Paso, Texas-based lawyer Taylor Levy saw a Facebook message from a California attorney asking her to track down David and Sebastian, David's family had been apart for six weeks. Photos of Sebastian back in Honduras show a chubby, smiling boy. But when Levy met with him, she was alarmed by his condition. He was skin and bones, Levy remembered, and he couldn't make eye contact. He was almost catatonic. I've worked with thousands of asylum-seeking families and hundreds of separated kids, Levy said, and he completely, completely just shocked me by how badly he was doing. On its face, the case of David and Mirza baffled Levy. The family crossed the border together and had fled the same violence and threats, but the more she thought about it, the clearer it became. Their predicament reflected the unaccountable, arbitrary system the Trump administration has created. This wasn't just a mistake, Levy said. This was gross negligence. David had hoped to make a life with Mirza in Honduras. I never longed to come to the United States, God knows, David told ProPublica. They had met as teenagers after David began taking farm jobs with Mirza's family, and they courted on walks to church, respecting Mirza's mother's wishes that they did not date until Mirza finished finished school. In 2011, they moved in together, but then David faced threats from gang members. According to his sworn asylum declaration, which was confirmed by a relative to ProPublica, a male ex-classmate of Mirza's who was involved in a local gang made sexual advances toward David that David repeatedly rejected. David Stalker's first attack left a bullet lodged near his spine. The second riddled his leg with buckshot. David said he filed a police complaint, but nothing happened. Honduras at the time had the highest homicide rate in the world, and 96% of murders went unsolved. The homicide rate has declined, but is still among the world's highest. The couple went into hiding while Mirza was pregnant with Sebastian, but threatening texts kept coming to Mirza's phone. One especially chilling text sent shortly before they fled Honduras promised to kill the whole family, from the largest hen to the smallest chick. 
When David's sister and uncle were killed, not far from where David and Mirza lived, the couple sought refuge in a smaller town. David did yard work, and Mirza became pregnant again and gave birth to Leah. But they were petrified. David's grandmother reported a black van casing the neighborhood, and David watched a stranger on a motorcycle driving by their house. In January 2019, they decided they had to leave Honduras. David called his Aunt Marlin in San Jose, California, whom he hadn't seen in a decade, asking her to take them in. I'd like to get out of here, Marlin recalled her nephew saying, because if I stay very shortly, they're going to kill me. It took months to save 5000 Honduran dollars for travel costs. But as the couple planned their escape, the U.S. asylum system was changing. For decades, the Border Patrol's role in dealing with migrant families was to quickly pass them on to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, which handles detention. If a migrant expressed fear of returning to their home country, they were interviewed by an asylum officer who would decide if they had a credible case. Families passing the interview, as most did, would generally be released in the U.S. to await a hearing. But the Trump administration was determined to deter border crossings. In January 2019, it used an obscure legal provision to force Central American migrants who sought asylum to wait in Mexico before getting hearings in the U.S. That program, which has since expanded to other Latin American migrants, is known as the Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP. In the fall, the administration launched two more programs for Mexican and Central American families, giving cursory review to their asylum claims so that they could be deported within 10 days. Toward year's end, the administration started sending home Honduran and Salvadorian migrants to Guatemala to seek asylum there without offering them a chance to make a U.S. claim at all. With each initiative, the U.S. quietly rolled out pilot program, a pilot pro, excuse me, with each initiative, the U.S. quietly rolled out a pilot program in one region, then expanded it. Gradual, gradual expansion has allowed the government to keep those, these programs out of the public eye, but it hasn't led it to exercise more care. There's increasing evidence of haphazard planning and implementation. Days before the Trump administration started sending Honduran and Salvadoran asylum seekers to Guatemala, basic logistics were still unclear, such as where asylum seekers would live. Even as the, as the administration considers expanding rapid deportation programs, the DHS's Office of Inspector General has launched an investigation into whether migrants are being treated fairly. Under MPP, the Mexican government decides how many migrants per day it will accept from the U.S., and U.S. officials decide who gets sent to Mexico. Regional Border Patrol and port offices are responsible for making those daily selections and leave it up to agents. Guidance has been minimal. A January 2019 memo to CBP employees suggested that agents not send back to Mexico unaccompanied children, people with serious health conditions, and other vulnerable populations, but stressed the border agents had full discretion. In practice, pregnant people, even those about to give birth, are routinely sent to Mexico to wait, according to advocates on both sides of the border, and migrants themselves, officers in El Paso, often classify LGBT migrants as vulnerable and let them stay. Officers in Brownsville, Texas, do not. 
An internal DHS report from November 2019 revealed that the government hasn't, hadn't even developed standardized forms of MPP. In its response, DHS agreed to reinforce its existing guidance to clarify who qualified for the program, but it acknowledged that it had no standard procedures to determine selections, and it refused to commit to developing them. Advocates argue it's illegal to separate biological parents and children as a rule. Anytime you're splitting up a family, the law requires you have to have a compelling reason, said Lee Gellert, a ACLU lawyer, the ACLU lawyer leading the lawsuit, which ended widespread family separations in June 2018. But rulings address only taking children away from parents entirely, not separations like David and Mirza's, which split families but keep children with at least one parent. The government's processing guide instructs agents not to separate family units with juveniles, parents with children, but several current CBP employees told ProPublica that agents can commonly ignore the guideline by separating men and women for transport and in detention facilities. According to Border Patrol sources, the mistake in David and Mirza's case likely occurred when Border Patrol agents failed to note their family status in intake forms. Agents should have reflected David and Mirza's accounts on the forms and checked their children's birth certificates to confirm parentage. David's account echoed complaints Levy had heard while working at An Annunciation House, El Paso's largest migrant shelter. She said she'd spoken to thousands of people just released from Border Patrol custody, and over and over again we hear the same thing, that agents don't listen to them. Mirza's lawyer, Shuan Zubin, Ruhali, a pro bono attorney with the Bay Area nonprofit Siren, said his clients so commonly tell them they've been threatened or accused of lying that he doesn't even bother to file court complaints. Neither David nor Mirza filed a formal complaint with the Border Patrol. When David and Mirza came to the U.S. last summer, apprehension of Central American families were at a peak. That week, 21,678 parents and children were taken in by Border Patrol. The agency faced a capacity crisis. Inattention to paperwork was common, according to multiple officials and attorneys for migrants. Yet the paperwork mattered more than ever. Under the old system, the Border Patrol would transfer asylum seekers to ICE, giving them a second chance to catch mistakes, and Aaron Reichlin Melnick, a researcher with the American Immigration Council, said... Okay, said Aaron Reichlin Melnick, a researcher with the American Immigration Council. Initial asylum interviews offered a third chance. Asylum officers had the power to unite families who'd been carelessly separated. Under the new dispersal strategy, which has continued to expand even after intake numbers dropped, migrants only came into contact with one government agency, the Border Patrol. The day after David and Sebastian were sent to Juarez, Mirza and Leah were shuffled onto a bus out of the Border Patrol facility and dropped at an El Paso shelter. A volunteer asked Mirza for a U.S. contact. She named David's aunt, Marlon, whom she had never met. The volunteer arranged for a bus ticket, and Mirza carried Leah onto an intercity bus. She couldn't understand the bus announcements in English. When they arrived in San Jose, she worried that she'd exited at the wrong stop. Marlon was late, stopping at a store to buy a car seat for Leah. By the time she arrived, Mirza sat on a, sat on a bench, sobbing. Mirza had been told to call a government hotline to learn about the status of her asylum case, but the hotline didn't give her information. She realized she needed help. She walked into the offices of Siren, which offered legal services, and spelled out her story to pro bono attorney Riahi. Uh, Riahi sense that Mirza could win asylum. The federal court that set precedent for San Francisco's immigration judges and asylum officers had defined asylum eligibility broadly, and Mirza's case, which would be considered there, fit well within a long-standing precedent.
Meanwhile, David's case had been assigned to a judge in Texas who rejected almost all asylum claims. David was likely to, to be deported unless Riahi could get him included in Mirza's claim. The challenge was compounded by yet another government mistake. No official had ever filed Mirza's case with an immigration court. This allowed Mirza to apply for asylum proactively with an asylum officer, like migrants who enter the U.S. on visas, with slightly better chances than she would have before an immigration judge. But Amant Riahi couldn't simply ask a judge to combine David's case with Mirza's because the cases were on different legal tracks. The best hope was that David could be included as a dependent on Mirza's application. They'd have to be officially married first, so Riahi set about arranging a cross-border wedding. Riahi, overburdened with pro bono clients, didn't have time to go to Juarez, so he sent Levy a Facebook message. He didn't know the veteran Texas lawyer, although he had seen Levy's post about problems with the MPP program. Levy was hesitant to take on another request from a far-flung lawyer. Riahi was really, really worried, and he really cared, she told ProPublica. To be honest, it gets kind of exhausting, because everyone's really worried and everyone really cares. She decided to at least meet David and Sebastian in Juarez. David and Sebastian's world had become claustrophobically small. Leaving the shelter could mean getting mugged or kidnapped. With the exception of their first court hearing in El Paso, for which they'd traversed Juarez in the dead of night to reach the International Bridge by 4.30 a.m., they'd barely ventured out. Sebastian had contracted a throat infection just before their first court date, and it worsened when the two spent another night in the CBP Hilera, the holding cells no, called ice boxes because they've kept, they're kept so cold, before returning to Juarez. But the weight loss continued even after he recovered, leading David to suspect the boy was acutely depressed. For nearly three weeks, he rejected solid food. It was just juice, 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 David said. Speaking to Mirza on David's cl clandestine cell phone purchased against shelter policies didn't help. Sebastian lashed out at her. But David and Mirza both recall him saying, you're a bad person, mommy. You left us here in Mexico. Sometimes he was so angry that he could not talk to her at all. When Levy took on his case, David felt lucky. According to one analysis, 96% of migrants waiting in Mexico for their U.S. cases have no legal representation. But Levy warned him that if he remained on his judge's docket, deportation was almost certain. The only clear way to get removed from the MPP program was to persuade an asylum officer that David could be that David would be persecuted in Mexico, a very high bar he had already tried and failed to meet. Levy realized this family couldn't rely on the process to bring them together. David and Mirza and Levy and Riahi would have to fight it. Riahi had originally planned to bring Mirza to the US side of the border in Mexico, New Mexico bring David to the Mexican side and have them stand in their respective countries while a pastor officiated vows. But they couldn't get a New Mexican marriage certificate unless both spouses appeared at the county office, an impossibility for David. Instead, Riahi and Levy planned a sort of caper. They'd turn David's next U.S. court hearing in El, in El Paso on August 21st into a secret wedding. Mirza flew to El Paso carrying a wedding dress she'd bought at Ross with lace sleeves and a layered skirt, her ankle monitor a telling accessory. Levy took a single picture of the bride. Cameras aren't allowed in immigration courtrooms, and they don't want to push their luck. Then entered the courtroom with Mirza and a Texas municipal judge to sign the marriage certificate. When Sebastian saw his mother, he cried out, Mommy, Mommy. He fell asleep in her lap while the immigration judge conducted a brief scheduling hearing. 
Afterward, Levy requested five minutes to confer with her clients in a side room where the municipal judge hurriedly performed the ceremony. Then Sebastian told David, your mommy has to go now. No, I'm going with her, Sebastian cried. For two days afterward, through another unsuccessful plea with an asylum officer to get them out of Mexico, another Hilera stay, and another return to Juarez, the child was inconsolable. With the marriage now official, Mirza could file her asylum application and include David as her husband. But in the few weeks it took to submit the application, the Trump administration imposed another twist. Attorney General William Barr issued a ruling contradicting the federal court precedent Riahi had planned to rely on in Mirza's asylum case. Until a federal judge rules on Barr's edict, asylum officers now have two competing precedents, and Riahi fully expected they'd defer to the new Barr ruling. Mirza's case had gone from an easy win to a likely protracted legal fight. Meanwhile, David and Sebastian were stuck in Juarez. Under the shelter's rules, after two court hearings, they had to find another place to stay. So David found a cramped apartment he and Sebastian could share with four other Honduran parents and sons. He couldn't work regularly because he couldn't abandon Sebastian. They relied on Mirza's earnings, cleaning houses, or loans from relatives to pay rent. After money ran low, David and Sebastian squeezed into an even smaller apartment, one room crammed with ten other people, a few bunk beds, and a fridge. When four of them left Juarez to cross with smugglers into the U.S., David and Sebastian gained a little space, but their share of rent rose to the equivalent of a hundred U.S. dollars a month. The apartment had only six plates and six spoons, so everyone ate in shifts. Playing outside meant playing ball in a hallway littered with rubble and broken glass. Sebastian was beginning to put on weight and gain energy, but he was still shy around other children. When spoken to, he would either stay silent or cry. In mid-September, Levy brought in a counselor to assess Sebastian. While he was able to brighten his effect, affect at times, particularly when recalling his mom and younger sibling, Sebastian still feels uncertain when asked about his mom, the evaluation said. He disclosed, My mom left me, and I don't know why. Mirza, too, was distraught. She joked that while Sebastian lost weight in Mexico, she was gaining it in the U.S. She cried often and slept little. Marlon took her to a psychiatrist who diagnosed her with depression. In El Paso, Levy prepared a court motion to move David's court case to San Francisco, which would force the government to let him stay in the U.S. She gathered up the Honduran birth certificates, a, the wedding certificate, Sebastian's psychological evaluation, a copy of Burza's antidepressant prescription. The night before our hearing on the motion, Levy appealed directly to Border Patrol lawyers. To the best of our knowledge, the family unit crossed the border together and were erroneously separated by Border Patrol agents, she wrote in an email. Please act expeditiously to remedy this erroneous separation. Two days later, yet another court delay. Levy got an unexpected message from the Border Patrol. The father and child are at El Paso Station, are at El Paso Station 1, and are being converted out of MPP at this time. They had been saved from returning to Mexico, but no further explanation was provided. I don't know if it's because of anything that we necessarily did, Riahi told ProPublica. Taylor kind of moved mountains out here in El Paso, but ultimately CBP decided to do it. <sighs> David and Sebastian didn't fit into any of the categories outlined in the vague CBP policy about who should be sent back to Mexico and who, sh who should not. Discretion simply happened to work in their favor this time. 
But for families caught in the new programs, which don't include appearances before an immigration judge, the Border Patrol's initial determination and any errors that come in it are, as far as anyone can tell, permanent. If a Honduran parent is separated from their child in error and then sent to Guatemala, Levy asked, how is anyone supposed to access that parent? After a five-day wait in Hilera, David and Sebastian were finally released in El Paso on October 7th. They stayed at the Annunciation House shelter for a week, waiting for their next court hearing there. But when Levy, David, and Sebastian arrived in court, they faced yet another mix-up. The government had already transferred the case to San Francisco without bothering to notify either Levy or the judge. The next morning, David and Sebastian finally boarded an airplane, their first to reunite with Mirza and Leah at last. Moving David's case to San Francisco essentially froze his asylum timeline, making it impossible for him to get a work permit. His first hearing in front of a San Francisco judge is set for early March. The family had to move out of Marlon's house. The garage Marlon had furnished as their bedroom wasn't big enough to contain Leah's boundless energy, and Marlon's husband and teenage daughter had lost patience with the visitors. Mirza now worries how long they can afford their own apartment. Some things have improved. With each passing month, Sebastian gets more comfortable in first grade. He's made friends who help him with his homework now, and Leah gets more rambunctious. But it's far from clear that the family will be able to stay in the U.S. Their cases are still on two separate tracks. Mirza's asylum application remains in limbo. A December interview date was rescheduled, then postponed indefinitely. The attorney general's ruling makes it more likely her claim will be denied. Their lawyers are prepared to appeal both cases if they lose, but appeals take years. Mirza is certain they'll be killed if they return to Honduras, and they intend to leave if ordered to do so. As Mirza told ProPublica, we have to follow the law. However uncertain the future, the family remains together. That was what they celebrated that afternoon in October, when David and Sebastian arrived at Marlon's home from the airport, with David holding their release orders and Sebastian carrying a toy lightsaber he'd had to sneak past TSA. As the boy approached Marlon's door, Mirza stood in the doorway. He paused for a second, then ran to her. Leah sprinted into David's arms. They posed for family pictures, and more than once, they had to look for Sebastian, who had wandered off on his own. Once he was safely deposited on Mirza's lap, though, he wouldn't let go.
Right, and welcome back to the show. We've got a few more minutes left, so I'm just going to get to a couple more headlines. Fortunately, we don't have any real, well, uh, positive news to end on, I guess. Although um, SB 850 did not pass in California, which is good. It was... <sighs> there happens to be more empty houses than there are folks who need houses, and it, it seems that... I won't get into it too much. However, it was positive that this bill did not pass because it has been... A lot of folks who are have been studying and just living how the lack of affordable housing is what has caused the crisis of unhoused, having so many folks be unhoused. I'm running out of words here. Not running out of words, just I think a bit emotional from that last uh, article. Jesus fucking Christ. It's awful. And how much fucking cruelty there is in the world. Oh. Speaking of cruelty... The fucking numbnuts, uh, the people in positions of power in South Dakota decided to move forward with this anti-trans bill that would criminalize trans youth from seeking health care and penalize folks who would help them. It's really fucked up and it's really cruel. So a lot of folks are uh, showing up to try to prevent it. Um, a lot of us have tried contacting representatives in South Dakota to tell them, like, fuck off. There's also been like similar bills around the country that they're trying to pass. In Kentucky, there was one. There was one in Iowa, which I believe was not signed, which is good. But it's also like people are technically, they're creating laws that harm people. So, I mean, it's, it's all around. There's so much cruelty. And I don't understand how people can just willingly go along with it. I mean, perhaps there's a lot of fear-mongering, fear-mongering and misinformation. However, how anyone in a position of power will use that to then harm marginalized communities and vulnerable communities and everyone and like kids is just a fucking disgrace. They should be ashamed of themselves. <sighs> so also now I'm reading in Florida as well. There is an attack on trans youth and... If you uh, follow Chase Strangio, Chase is a lawyer who um, shares a lot of information. You can follow Chase on Twitter, and that's at Chase Strangio, and that's C-H-A-S-E-S-T-R-A-N-G-I-O. You can find a lot of information from Chase. So there's um, a ban on uh, trans survival is pretty much what it is, and this is in Florida. I'm going to retweet it right now. If you follow me on Twitter, I share a lot of these petitions in ways that folks can show up. And this is, ugh, there's a house hearing on February 3rd. It threatens to jail doctors up to 15 years for providing life-saving care to trans youth. So they're criminalizing health care for kids. This country is so fucking sick and disgusting. This is what people use their time and energy for, is to threaten people for caring for one another. It's fucking disgusting. So as I speak, I'm going to just fill out this right now. And this is, this is no on HB 1365. And they want all my info. All right, fine. And I'm typing it in right now. Okay. Preferred phone number is required. They're asking a lot of my info. Well, whatever. They can go fuck themselves. I will put it anyway. Oh, wow. I'm just, yeah. Uh, 
I don't know. I guess if one doesn't feel this upset by hearing all that's happening in the world, it's kind of hard to keep things together. It really is. And so the the story is, I'm going to go back here and find the bill that was in South Dakota. And Chase has also shared a article, Where Do Laws Come From?, that was posted in Medium.com, which I think will help shed some light on it, on this information. Ooh, there's also Democracy Now! has a link about called a, a documentary called Disclosure, which examines a century of trans representation in film and TV. When my mental health is feeling a little bit more stable, I think I'll check it out. Fridays, usually after the show, um, when I have guests in, I'm uplifted, and when I go over news articles, it feels real rough because this is what's happening and so yes please do follow chase strangio on twitter find out ways you can support trans youth around the world and uh uh yeah it was uh, s uh, hb 1215 is a new one in, in south dakota just a lot of really evil bills that folks have put forward so please do help get out the word and yeah hb 1057 was the first one about youth and then there's another one so and one more article which i was going to read however we're out of time and uh oof might be a bit much for me to read and this is from mint press news oh my oh my i'm gonna get to the top of the article um how the government and media are prepping America for a failed 2020 election. And uh, Russia, China, and Iran are already being blamed for using tech to undermine the 2020 election, yet the very technologies they are allegedly using were crafted by a web of companies with deep ties to Israeli intelligence. And that's written by Whitney Webb. You can read more at mintpressnews.com. I also wanted to recommend a book that I've been reading. It's from 40 different authors, and it's really informative, and I highly recommend folks check it out. And it's called Reclaiming Judaism from Zionism, uh, Stories of Personal Transformation, and it's edited by Carolyn L. Karcher, and you can find it at... Uh, Green Arcade books in San Francisco and many other places. So I highly recommend folks check that out. All right. One more song from Bjork. I started the I started the show on side B. It's one of those days. Anyway, here's the last song from side A of the album. We'll be back next week uh, with Jackie Fielder, who will be running against Scott Wiener. Uh, so looking forward to talking with Jackie. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for the guests for coming in. If you're interested in other shows here, check out mutinyradio.fm. Our archive is up. If you want to support the show or the station, go to mutinyradio.fm for the GoFundMe for the station. There's a Venmo for the station, at Mutiny Radio. And we have a Patreon for this show, patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll be back next week.
Glow in the dark thread. 